the real challenge is to get my personality and my image out in front of the joke and then have it be that these jokes are what I'm choosing to talk about. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Last podcast. Rick Roberts here. And man, I had too much Halloween candy uh, last night with two kids. And uh, one kid doesn't eat chocolate, so that defaulted. Oh, that defaulted over to my plate. And then um, my littlest one doesn't like uh, several types of candy. So I ended up, you know, falling on the grenade and taking one for the team. And I may have done too much. But uh, nonetheless, I'm here today because we've got a podcast. It is the first. We released these on the 1st and 15th. And today I'm excited because I got to talk to Ross Bennett. And anybody who knows Ross Bennett may not know Ross Bennett uh, completely. He's an interesting guy, and I got to pick his brain a little bit, find out more about him, and I'm glad I did. You're going to dig this podcast. He also teaches uh, classes up in New York City when he's not traveling the Manhattan Comedy Club. Uh, you can check all this out at rossbennett.com. That's R-O-S-S-B-E-N-N-E-T-T.com. He's a great dude, and we'll get to that in less than 30 seconds. I wanted to give a quick shout-out to our Patreon supporter this time through. Uh, welcome to Patreon's Club 52, Gina DiMaggio. Gina, glad to have you on board with the podcast and looking forward to uh, meeting you maybe in one of the Google Hangouts that we do, uh, Zoom Hangout, I guess we call it now. But uh, those will be coming up soon. Uh, we'll have one in November, and I'll make sure you get the invite. If you're interested in Club 52 or want to know more about it, just Google search Club 52 and School of Laughs. Learn all you can. All right. Other than that, thanks to Joel Byers and the Hot Breath Podcast for sponsoring. Let's get right into this one with Ross Bennett. I'll talk to you on the flip side. So, Ross, thanks for taking time to jump on the call today. And uh, we were talking a little bit offline before we started, but I'm, I'm curious where and when did you find out that comedy might be a thing you wanted to pursue? Was it the high school years, like most of us? I was very fortunate. I, I, I was able to find my thing. And in high school, you know, I mean, I'm the slowest kid, the geekest kid, the last one to hit puberty. Um, I'm... Uh, uh, and this, and I'm a smart aleck and I, you know, have this tremendous need to be noticed or to be a star or whatever. And, but I get uh, on the, on the yearbook staff as a photographer. And I, that became my identity in high school was being a photographer. Um, uh, and uh, you know, combining that with doing the announcements in the morning on the, uh, uh, on the radio, on the, you know, the, the announcing system in the school. And then uh, um, after high school, I went to University of Florida and, and quickly uh, <laughs> got overwhelmed by that situation, enlisted in the Army, and uh, ended up in Fort Knox, Kentucky. And uh, when I was at Fort Knox, I had a, a company commander who recommended me for uh, the West Point, the, the military academy at West Point. Really? And um, uh, one thing led to another, and I spent a year at a prep school 
preparing for West Point. And I went to the academy in the summer of 75. And um, what happened was I went through the first year and a half, uh, you know, summer of 75 through uh, the Christmas of uh, 76. What went on? We're talking about Saturday Night Live and uh, uh, Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that, you know, those two events were like the ringing of the bell for many of the guys in my generation um, towards this, you know, they were having so much fun. Right. You know what I'm saying? We had seen, we had watched, we had watched like um, uh, uh, Robert Klein and Carlin and, and stuff on television. But all of a sudden there's these younger people and they're just having so much fun. And it's like, my gosh, I, I want to be a part of that. I mean, it's like they can do it. And then Freddie Prinze, Became, you know, it's like, oh, here's this guy my age uh, becomes the star. And then he dies. Right. You know, he shoots himself. And I remember being at the academy and finding when that happened and saying to myself, you know, if I don't do this, if I don't give this a shot, I'll always wonder. Right. I just had this sense that if I stayed at the academy, because I was at this, I was at this point where. I could leave and not have to go back out in the army. But I only had about six months before I would owe them more time. And uh, I said to myself, you know, if I stay here, I'm going to, that's two years and I'll owe the army five years. And there's no way I'm not going to be married with kids after seven more years. And, uh, and then I'll be like too, I'll just, that's almost all I'd be too old to do what I wanted to do. Well, it's a good thing that you and, uh, identified that. So I, I, and then it, it took me, I tried to make jokes about it for years and years and years and years. I finally came up with one joke. I, you know, I teach a writing class here in New York City. And I, my big thing is, you know, you never know. I mean, some of these jokes, they take a long time to gestate, okay? Mm-hmm. This one took 40 years. And the joke is, um, I left West Point to become a comedian, probably the greatest service I will have ever done for my country. <laughs> That's a solid joke. It's worth the wait. It's, you know, and there's nothing I like better. I love it when you have a line that says something and is a strong line. Right. Okay. It's, and, you know, and, and it's, it's one of those things. It's, it's like, you know, like in musicals and modern musicals, the whole thing was when your song also progressed the plot forward. Right. Well, right. when you can have a line in your act that progresses your story forward. Uh, and that's a big thing that I've done as a comic is I've, I've felt that what I'm supposed to do on stage is reveal myself to people, tell them my story. Right. And, uh, and in the, in the course of doing that, I talk about life and I talk about things in the world and everything, but ultimately I feel that I'm, I'm what they're, I'm what I'm supposed to talk to them about. Right. And that's, I know for, uh, for new comics that are listening, that's sometimes, you know, some of those new comics get that right away, but they don't know how to deliver that material. And so it doesn't get the response they want. They back away from it. When you first started, did it take you a while to get to that kind of autobiographical approach to the material or were you more topical? You know, it, like most of us, you know, what, what happens is as you're creating stuff, I, and this is, this is basically what I talk to my class about. 
you got to remember that what we do, what we do, we're a joke delivery system. Okay. Our job is to tell jokes. And as long as you keep that in mind, uh, you have a chance to, to be successful. Okay. Now, what you tell jokes about sort of varies. All right. Uh, but as you're creating material, sometimes it's ob- observational things about the world. And sometimes it's things about me. And we're taking them up on stage and we're trying them out. And the ones that work, they keep. And the ones that don't work, we let go of. Um, you know, George Miller, wonderful comic George Miller, he had the greatest, he had the greatest thing he did. I can still remember seeing, I saw, I'm, I'm out to LA in uh, uh, January of 79. And I went to Comedy Store to see what I was up against. You know, I was 23 years old. And, um, See, see, see what I had, what, what I had in front of me to, uh, that I had a, uh, to get into this business. Okay. Sure, sure. And George Miller goes up and he had this, he brought up a stack of three by five cards and he started reading jokes off these three by five cards. And then he had this line and he goes, you know, he goes, these are all new jokes. And what I do is if the joke works, I take the right corner here and I fold it down and then I save that and I know to do it again later. And if it doesn't work, I take the left corner and I fold it down and I sell those to new comics. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Isn't that funny? <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> that's hilarious. So, it, so yeah, when you go out there and you see, and you're looking for what's uh, the dragons you got to slay to move up the chain, what, what other things jumped out at you as far as, <laughs> Oh, I need to get better at this or I need to overcome that. What, what things got on your radar with that trip? Out well, there? You know, I was at, at 23, I had pretty much, I did my best to become like a long haired hippie freak, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, let my hair grow out. And uh, I had it in my mind, I didn't want to do anything like anybody else. And I had it in my mind that, that the real, real strength was in the laughs you get that were not associated with a joke. Hmm. That's a real comic. And that was at least that's where I was at that particular time. And at that time, I was I was just going out and flying by the seat of my pants. I mean, I had routines and everything, but I would sometimes go out and and have a horrible attitude and say things and alienate people with the thought that now if I can get them back by the end of this show, that'll be that's that's quite an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and. I made my life a, a lot harder than I had to, Rick. I'll tell you right now. When I think back, and I was out in L.A. at the Comedy Store when all these New York acts came out. These wonderful acts like Seinfeld and Mark Schiff and uh, George Wallace and Richard Belzer, they came out. And, and Seinfeld's the one, I mean, such beautiful material. I remember just wa- just watching, and it's like, wow. I mean, it, it was. Don't take this the wrong. I mean, if Jerry's listening, it, I was telling myself it was soulless, okay, because it it didn't connect to anything. In, it didn't seem to connect to anything. It was only there to be clever and to make people laugh. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that 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 was enough. And he was just so wonderful at it. And and I. I thought I had to fill everything I had with so much angst and everything. I always had some good lines in my act. I always had some good lines, 
but it really wasn't until I moved to New York about 2000 to sort of restart my career that I focused on my writing for the sake of writing. And what steps did you take to kind of hone in on that? Did you take any classes yourself or get with a writer's group of comics or what helped you move that forward? I was around people who were wonderful writers and and New York tends to really attract people who are trying to uh, create great material. You know, I, I, uh, L.A. is often about becoming a star and, and New York is often about becoming a great comedian. Okay, And um, not that you can't do one and the other or whatever, but that seems to be the way it is. And I just, everybody in, in the city was always working on material. Okay. You know, you look at, you, you go through the list, you go through, you know, down at the cellar, Jim Norton and, uh, and Colin Quinn. Uh, you know, people like that, they're, they're always working on material. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Laurie Kilmartin always was working on material. Uh, guys like Pete Coriel, always, Joe Mattery's always working. They're always working on new stuff. And so it really, Bill Burr, always working on new material. And, uh, it, you know, it, it, it forced me to, to, to give it a shot, you know, to, to try and create this. Oh, and and the stars who would come into the clubs at that time, guys like um, uh, Seinfeld or uh, uh, Chris Rock, they weren't coming in just to do their old act to stroke themselves. Okay, right. They were they would be coming in because they had written material and they were preparing to do a set on Letterman, or they were preparing to do host the Oscars or whatever. When they, when they were, when they were, when they would stop in, I've always had so much respect for these guys because when they would stop into a club and bump everybody, they weren't bumping them for their own ego. They were bumping them because they had work they had to do. They were creating something. Right. Uh, And I, I always had great respect for that. And was it about that time when you moved to New York or a little bit before that, that you'd started thinking about, you know, pursuing the David Letterman show and, and kind of getting, getting your set together for that. I mean, that's well, sure the goal for every comic when you start, but when did you realize it was a potentially achievable goal? I tried to get on the tonight show <clears throat> with, with Carson around 1982, 83, around there. Mm-hmm. And so I've been rejected from these shows for 30 years. <laughs> okay. Right. Um, I remember when I auditioned for Jim McCauley, I remember his response was, I didn't see anything I thought was funny. And I definitely didn't see anything that Johnny would think was funny. Oh man. And, uh, it was brutal. And, uh, with the smell of bourbon in the air, you know? Right. And, um, uh, but what I realize now in retrospect is these guys, see, I'm up on stage. We go up, a comic goes up and all I hear are my laughs. And, you know, if you're a good comic, you're going to get the laughs. All right. That's not the thing that, you know, we, that's why we do what we do. You know, you, you get to a certain point, you can go up and get the laughs. The question is, how do you get the laughs? What is it you're doing to get the laughs? Right. And so guys like Jim McCauley or Mitzi Shore or Bud Friedman and these different, you know, power people, they've seen a thousand comedians. And so, we might be doing stuff that's hack, but we don't know it's hack because 
we're getting the laughs. We think that's enough. Right. And that's why the guys who are these brilliant people like Stephen Wright, you know, they just pop, you know, they're just it's so evident. Um, you know, people like Roseanne Barr, when she walks into the comedy store, why it's just so evident that, you know, she's just this, this flower that's just ready uh, to, to bloom in front of the country. Okay. Um, so, uh, when I got out to New York, I'd always wanted to do it. I'd auditioned a few times, been told no a number of times. And I remember auditioning for Eddie Brill, asking him to look at me. He looked at me. And, uh, and we were friends. I would play poker with him some. And he goes, I, I, goes, I hate to tell you this. He goes, it's always hurt to tell a friend this, but you're not right for the show. And, you know, it's, it's it's a hard thing to hear because it's just so dismissive. You know, it's like, well, how can I be right? You know, it's like you you want to you want an argue you want to give an argument, but it's like a girl who says she doesn't want to go out with you. If they don't want to go out with you, they don't want to go out with you. Right. You know, there's you can't you can't make you can't make someone like you like that. And um, and then it was tough because I was I was I was always working on my material in New York that I thought was right for TV. That was, I was always working on that set. And because um, uh, when I moved to New York, I had it in my mind of, of what a showcase set was, okay? You know, you, you know you, a lot of guys, I would see them, they would come to New York and they would do like 10 minutes out of the road act. And they would wonder why that wasn't, that, that, that didn't wow them. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew pretty much early on that, you couldn't just do 10 minutes out of your road act. You got to put together a 10 minute set, you know? And uh, that's what I did. And I worked on it for years and people would say to me at the company, you're perfect. You should be on Letterman. You're perfect. Blah, 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 blah. And um, no, no, Eddie said, no, Eddie said, no. Well, one thing led to another. God bless Eddie Brill, but he got fired. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when Eddie got fired, they, they put these, this triumvirate of three fairly young people, uh, in charge of looking at comics. And this was about 2012. And they went out and uh, I was given the opportunity to audition for them. And when the opportunity came to me, I almost, I said no at first. And then I said, yes, because I didn't want to be disappointed again. I, just, I couldn't handle it. Right. But then I went back and I said, yes. And I had been working on this set and I just went up and I knocked it out of the park. And then they said, we want to see you again. And I went to another place with another group of comics. And a lot of them, you know, were not, I was seasoned and I had some, you know, smart, clever material. And I knocked it out of the park again. And then we put together my set. And that took me to the end of the summer of like 2012. And I had to wait six months to do this, to do, to get on the show. I was waiting for the call for six months. It was brutal. It was brutal. You would see, you know, and you, and you keep hoping that Dave's not going to die. Okay. <laughs> you know, that, that there's not going to be some sort of a horrible incident that happened. Right. right. And then I remember when they, when they called me, they offered me two dates. It was so funny. And the first one, uh, I was working cruise. And the second one, I was free. And my instinct was, of course, I'll cancel the cruise and I'll take the first one. Uh-huh. And I knew that what I had to do 
was not be that eager. And I had to take the second date. Right. And I'm going to tell you for those next two weeks waiting <laughs> for that, I was on pins and needles. You know, this guy had better not have a heart attack. Okay. Stay right. cool. You know, don't, don't do a meltdown up there, buddy. <laughs> you know, stay cool. You don't want this boat to sink. And, um, and then I got out there and I got to do it. And it's, uh, uh, it was one of the, it, it was kind of that, it was definitely a bucket list in my career. Mm, absolutely. And when you had that, uh, that six month countdown and then that final two week countdown, uh, to do the, the set, how much, you know, you've been working on it for years. How much did you do it just to keep it fresh or how much did you not do it to keep it fresh leading up to that? Uh, I, I went around the week before and, and allowed myself to, uh, uh, stop in at all the clubs in the town and go up, you know, almost every night. What's up school of laughs. This is Atlanta comedian, Joel Byers and host of the weekly podcast, hot breath, your weekly guide to comedy mastery. Every Monday, you can hear well-researched interviews with comedians like Bo Burnham, Aries Spears, Miss Pat, and Rick Roberts, revealing their tips and techniques for finding comedy success on and off the stage. Subscribe to Hot Breath on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or any other podcast platform to join the Hot Breathiverse and learn the top comedy tips from comedy's top comics. I hope to see you there. Hot Breath. There's nothing like having an act. There's nothing like it in the world, you know? And, um... Because you you got the stuff that you 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 develop a relationship with this material. You've, some of the stuff you've done for you know decades, and some of it's fresh and new. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, particularly when you're a guy like me, I'm not a star, and so I'm always up there doing my greatest hits. Right. All right. And uh, nobody ever complains. And uh, I work a few new things once in a while, but I'm up there doing my great. But these jokes all mean something to me. You know, I, 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 and, and I think about them when I do them and, and where they came from. It's, I don't know. I, I, I love what I do. I still love what I do, Rick. That's great. And I always tell people too, like my act revolves around my family a whole lot. And obviously as comics, we travel, but when I'm talking about my family on stage, it kind of takes away a little bit of missing the family back at home. Cause I'm bringing them along with me. So I, I get excited when I get to yeah. my show. I've got a joke I've done about, I've made reference to with my son since I wrote it and I wrote it when he was a baby and he's now 33 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's, it's about students against driving drunk. And when I started doing it, it was like when he turns 17, we're going to sign this thing. And then when he was 17, we signed this thing. <laughs> right. And then after the year and then as time went on and afterwards, I remember when my son was 17 and we signed this thing. Right. Okay. And it, uh, every time I'm doing it, I just, I just feel close to my son, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. And, and it's funny too, as, as you know, you grow older and more experienced and the dates change on things. I'm always having to recalibrate how long ago my parents celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, when my anniversary is, how old my kids are. You know, so I'm trying to take all the math out of those jokes so that I can just say the joke and not have to think or be caught up in a, a math problem. that doesn't make sense to the audience if they're following that close. You know, it's interesting how that works. I still have a joke. And it invo- it's involved. It's in the students against drunk driving bit where I talk about 
calling my father up and I'm still using a payphone. <laughs> but it probably makes it a little a funnier. Do you call attention to the fact that you're doing it or let the audience kind of take a second? I, I used to, but I didn't know. I don't actually say payphone. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, but I'm, I'm miming a pace. I'm miming a, a phone, uh, uh, you know, a landline. Right. And I haven't, I haven't had a landline in this century, for heaven's sake. Right. And, um, uh, and I do it and I, and I sort of laugh to myself, you know, but it, they, uh, they give it to me. That's funny. That's funny. What do you, um, when you hit the road now, I, you probably, I assume do as much local as you can to, to, not worry about traveling so much, but you do corporate events and fundraisers and all kinds of gigs around the country. What are, what are some things that as a more experienced comedian you look forward to or don't look as much forward to when you hit the road to do gigs these days? Well, I would say the, the big uh, question mark, the thing that's is what is the venue and the space like? Mm-hmm. Okay. And What's the lighting and the sound like? All right. Um, and, you know, you, you, you give them a rider and you try and make it clear to them what your needs are. And you try and make it clear to them that the things I'm talking about is not me being a prima donna. These are things that if you get them, the more you get this close to what I'm telling you to do, the better the show is going to be, the better the response is going to be, the better the laughs are going to be. And the further they are away from any sense of of how a show should be produced, the less likely they are to follow those, those, those moments. And it's some, you know, sometimes you can overcome it, but you know that you're not, you know, they're paying you good money and they know that they're not getting the response that they could get if they had just done it right. Right. And it's, it's like it's like four or five basic things. You want the room to basically be dark. You want a, a a light on my face. You don't want overhead lighting. They think that that's enough. You want a sound system that they can clearly hear me. You want the audience fairly close to where you're standing. Okay. You don't want a big dance floor between you, and you want them to be somewhat uh, compact together. And you want to be introduced by somebody who the audience knows, and they have to know you're going to be performing before you get up there. Right. They can't, you know, they have to know there's going to be a comedian on the show. So that there's, you know, so they, that that's what they're expecting. And if you get, if you miss out on any of those things, it has a negative impact on the response. Right. Yeah. I had a show a couple weeks ago in Arizona where, I get there and I can see immediately like several of those components they didn't listen to. I, you know, talked to the guy five or six days ahead of time and he said, Oh yeah, we got it all covered and get there. And none of those things are covered. Do you have any, um, cause I have a hard time after the fact when I know it could have gone better, it went fine, but it could have gone a whole lot better. Uh, confronting that person afterwards and saying, well, you know, I, I, we kind of talked about this. Is, is there a way you address it afterwards or just, do as much as you can beforehand and then let it go. I tend to address it before the show. Mm-hmm. Okay. I tend to, uh, to talk to them about it before, you know, I said I needed this, 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 and this, 
and it's, you know, you, you know, you're, you're only, you're shooting yourself in the foot here. Um, you got to make sure that they have a clear, uh, rider. So at least it's spelled out. So they, so you can say, look, I told you all these things, right? You know, my rider, my rider isn't about M&Ms and uh, Mountain Dews in the, in the, in the dressing room. All right. <laughs> my rider is about, is about what makes the show, what it can really be. Okay. And, um, so, uh, if I, if I'm going to address them about it, you know, and I'll get there and I'll try and work it out. So I'm with them, you know, but it's, uh, it's always challenging. Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's the downside. The upside is when you get to a place and they have it set up perfectly, you know, and you can just, it's like T-ball. You can just knock it out of the park, you know, right. but the, the truth is the reason they hire us is that we can at least make a show out of the worst situation. And that's, that's really the proof of what a, uh, of a pro like, you know, yourself is that, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make uh what, what do you call it? <laughs> I'm making a silk purse out of a, a sow's ear, you know? Right. Uh, there. How's that for how's that for a Kentucky phrase, huh? Yeah, I'll work with that and I'll barbecue that pig when you're done with it. We'll get him yeah, up. You bet. <laughs> you um I just want to ask you a, a question on on your voice. Something I've always noticed when you perform is and even here on the podcast, your your attention to diction and enunciation is something I want to know how you got there with it. But also, do you think I kind of know the answer, but how many comics don't pay attention to that and miss out on not only the clarity of their joke telling, but also uh, the respect for the audience and giving them a great performance. Cause I, I just noticed that you're always very good down to the, the pop on the P if you have it uh, for a specific point in a joke, was that something that came naturally or did you, were you in theater at some point? Somebody taught you that, where did that evolve from? It's I did study theater and maybe it came from that. But once again, when I with my class, I'll be and I tell them about this tonight. Uh, and every every time is I said at the very beginning that we're a joke delivery system. My job here's how I here's how I tell my class what, what my job is. My job is to go through life and observe things that I think are funny. Okay, and then I got to figure out a way to tell that to a group of people. And to get them all to see what I saw that was funny and to get them to see it at the exact same moment so it can make a laugh and it pops, okay? Now, anything I do that gets in the way of, of basically, we're, I'm a translator is what I am. I mean, my, you know, I'm trying to get you to see what it was that I saw. And I got this line I've always done for years about being, you know, people think I look like I'm a teacher. And that's, I've gotten that for years, and I have a joke about it. Um, uh, but as a comic, I look at I look at that being the case. My job is to make sure they understand what I'm saying, because if they don't understand what I'm saying, they don't have a chance to see what it was that I thought was funny. Right. And when you um, when you deliver your material, do you? I find if I slow down enough to where I'm hearing it as if I'm hearing it for the first time, that that works best for the audience. Do you have any like mental tricks like that as far as staying on the pace and not getting too quick 
Well, I, I've always had a hard time looking people in the eye. Okay. Because uh, you know, part of me doesn't want to. Part of me still doesn't want to be up there until I get the laugh. Until I start getting laughs, I I know I want I want out. Okay, <laughs> right. once I start getting laughs, I'm okay. Okay, but <laughs> I find if I look at the people while I'm delivering the material, and I try and make eye contact and see if they get what I'm saying, because you can tell if someone is absorbing what you're saying or not. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you know, I, I'm loose enough with, with, with my jokes that if I look at them and they're not, and they don't seem to be absorbing it, I'll tell, I'll, I'll repeat a word. I'll repeat I'll re- repeat part of the setup. I want to make sure they get it. You know, I started noticing myself doing that when you'd be telling a joke and somebody would drop something or somebody would cough or somebody would make a noise in the middle of it. And you know that it interrupted some people being able to hear it. Mm-hmm. And then I just fine again. And I found that it didn't make any difference as long, you know, they got to get your, it's, you're building a, you're building a, a building and you know, each, each, you got to put each piece in there, but you know, each floor is, is solid for them to get the next piece. So um, I, I, the only thing I remember about pace is I think, I think it was Leno who said, I heard him say once about slow down. And if you think you're going too slow, uh, you can still go a little slower. Yeah. Something, something like that. Yeah. I think I heard um, that. And it's challenging because in order to do that, you have to realize that you are enough. Okay. That, that, you and your personality and your identity on stage is valid to occupy people's time, that it's worth occupying people's time. I don't have to, what I'll tell, what I'll tell them, what I, this is another image I put out to my class is about getting in front of the joke. And sometimes when you're uncomfortable on stage, you speed your jokes up like you're hiding behind your jokes. Okay. Mm-hmm. If I just say this stuff, I don't got to look at you. I don't got to think about you. I can, you know, I can sort of hide behind my jokes, but the real challenge is to get my personality and my image out in front of the joke and then have it be that these jokes are what I'm choosing to talk about. Here's another, you know, Leno was always, has always been like that. You know, hey, here's an idea, you know, <laughs> it right. always seems like he's, he's, he's picking these things out of the air. You know, and that's that's one of the wonderful things. He he would have. I would watch him in L.A. Uh, at going up, whether it was two hundred people or five people, made no difference. You couldn't tell any difference in him. He would get them all laughing, no matter how many were there, and it always seemed like he was just thinking of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, which is another one of you know the things we do. So I, I imagine yourself being a an archer. This is the image I love. You're an archer and your jokes are, are, are the arrows and they're in the quiver behind you. And you're standing there with your, your bow and your jokes, you're reaching back and you're picking one out and you're pulling it back in the, in the, in, and you're firing it. And how did that one go? That one went great. And then you're reaching back and get another one. Okay. You're choosing to tell each of these. And uh, uh, it, it makes it so I'm grounded on stage. Mm-hmm. I like that. And, it, you know, sometimes if you don't get the laugh, you didn't have the target and the audience for that joke to hit. So it's all about choosing the right material 
at the same time. And, you know, that actually reminds me, somebody told me a while back that we're talking about opening jokes because some people put a lot of pressure on opening jokes, but they had said that with an opening joke, if I just get the arrow on the board, on the target somewhere, I can get it. <laughs> I'm not worried about a bullseye the very first line out of my mouth. And that, that to me was a visual that I could relate to. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's cool. I just got to connect with them and I can get, I can zero in as we go, but I'm not going to get flustered if that first one doesn't hit the bullseye. You know what I mean? It's funny, you know, you get up after a while, you know, there's a half dozen different ways you can start a show. Mm-hmm. And at least for me, and sometimes it's with my, an A joke, if it's the perfect situation, and I can get out, get all their focus and nail them from the very first line. And sometimes I know I have to settle them down a little bit. And uh, so I'll just, you know, do a little bit of, uh, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, that kind of thing, looking around. Uh, waiting for them to, to gather their focus towards me. That happens a lot of times at like some of these senior communities or whatever I go to. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll do something topical up front um, that, or something that just happened in the room or make a comment about the person that introduced me. You know, I, I you have a habit and you just sort of go by instinct. At least that's what I, I do. Mm-hmm. You, you get, so, you know, you, that's what they don't realize is that, you've delivered these, you've been up 10,000 times. So almost every experience somewhere in your, in your DNA, you, you know how to handle it. Right. Um, so I, I have, I have a lot of choices to make when I go up these days. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm doing the show, um, uh, going out on tour starting this weekend, make comedy great again. Have you heard about this? No, it sounds, I already like it. It's, um, it's funny, you know, the, the, the title sounds political, but it's, it's apolitical. No political jokes. It's all clean comedy. And um, uh, it's like four comics, uh, myself, uh, um, I get David Earl Reed and Tina Georgi and uh, Jeff Allen. Oh, man. And we're doing... Uh, we got eight. We got eight bookings. They're they're all theater shows in the Northeast, and uh, the the tickets are going well. It's all clean comedy, no politics, um, and we're all just out there, you know, basically with baseball bats, just beating people over the head with our <laughs> with our material, you know. That's and it's it's basically for it's basically for people who just don't who. who who want to go out and, and be entertained and they don't want to be hit over the head with politics. Yeah. We've know? got enough, enough of that going on already for sure. Well, that sounds exciting. I'm sure you're looking forward to that. Um, oh yeah. man. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, I can't wait. Yeah. First show is this Friday. Oh man. I'll have to uh, get those dates and those locations from you. And when I post this, make sure that anybody listening, if they're in that area, they can, they can find the, Oh, great. Definitely spread the word a little I bit. Think the, I think the website, I think you can, if you just, if you just Google make comedy great again tour, okay. it'll pop up, you know, and they're already getting calls for the, um, and the Midwest are already starting to call the, uh, uh, the booker. Uh, so it looks like we're going to have a tour next year also. That's we might awesome. go to, it might be a whole national tour. That's great. So, Hopefully, I'll my way so I can 
check out the show. I, I know you and Jeff Allen are good buddies. He's one of those guys who uh, I always had great, you know, admiration for him. Because he made that he made that choice to make the transition from being a uh, a road act, uh, you know, making the choice to work clean and uh, putting himself out for churches and corporates and all that kind of stuff. And he's just wonderful, you know. Yeah, he's as far as economy of words and power of the punchline, he's he's one of the best. I saw him do an hour and a half. He uh, let me come out and open for him because I was, you know, I wanted, I wanted to do some churches, right? And uh, so it was a church over in the middle of Pennsylvania, and he let me come over and open for him. And because uh, I wanted to, I wanted to get the feel of, you know, can I do what I do in a church? That was the question. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and I did like my 20, 25 minutes. And then I sat, sat back and watched him. And he did, he might have been an hour and 45 minutes with, with an intermission. Uh-huh. So he did like 45 minutes, took a break, comes back, does like 20, 25 minutes. And then, he, and then his show segued into his spiritual witness, his Christian witness. And uh, it was just, it just knocked my socks off. He was tremendous, just tremendous. That's great. So, well, yeah. definitely link to those uh, shows with him and you and the other two, and hopefully a few people listening will check those out. Uh, I know they can go to your website to check out you, and that is rossbennett.com. It's two S's in Ross. Yeah, that's me. Two N's and two T's. I'll link to that in the show notes. Two S's, two S's, two N's, and two T's. That's right. You, you got them covered. Man, it's been great talking to you today, Ross. I appreciate you taking time. I know you're busy. Uh, and also people that are up in the New York area, Ross does teach classes. You want to talk about how they can find out more about that? Is that just on your website as well? It is on the website. It's the Manhattan Comedy School. And uh, it's a, I, I teach a six-week uh, comedy writing boot camp. Um, but you have to be in the city. You know, you have to be able to be in the city. That's great. Very exciting. Cool. Well, thanks again, Ross. I appreciate your time. Okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Be well, my friend. You too. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with the uh, very thoughtful, intelligent, and funny Ross Bennett. Again, rossbennett.com. That's R-O-S-S-B-E-N-N-E-T-T.com. You can find out more about that Make Comedy Great Again tour he's on with Jeff Allen and a couple other funny folks there. Uh, Hopefully, you'll be in an area where you can go out and check out Ross, see him in action. He's like a surgeon with his comedy, and uh, it's, it's really fun to watch. Even more fun just to listen to and have fun as a night out on the town. So go check out Ross Bennett. Uh, thanks again to Gina DiMaggio for sponsoring the podcast. Thanks to the hot breath podcast, Joel Byers for sponsoring us as well. And uh, again, if you want to join club 52, find out more how you can get uh, a weekly email to help you get better at your comedy. It's uh, you can get that as low as $7 a month sponsoring the podcast. And uh, we'd love to have you jump on board. And uh, you know, if you get news resolutions coming up, this might be a good one. Go ahead and start early so that you're doing something already on the 1st of January. I'll talk to you again on the 15th. This is Rick Roberts signing off. Stay funny, stay safe, and uh, stay away from that bag of Halloween candy. Goodness. Oh. All right. I'll be all right. Peace. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. 
For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.